the easiest way to succeed is to just never accept no as an answer. Rather than say, hey, you should care about this because of X, Y, and Z, and if you don't, you're a bad person, uh, we try and say, you don't have to know anything about this. Heck, you could run this race and you, you, know, you may not have, have, have learned anything about slavery and we'd still welcome you back next year um, to come and run it again. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Bailey. Welcome or welcome back to Never Too Early. Never Too Early is a podcast under the Entrepreneurs Network, a network for and by female entrepreneurs. This podcast showcases youth changemakers, whether it be entrepreneurs, activists, NGO founders, or more, encourages them to share their journeys, challenges, and tips, and aims to inspire other teens and young adults to make a difference as well. Today, we're so honored to have on Christopher Schrader, founder of the 24-Hour Race, who founded the charity at the age of 16 in Hong Kong. Now, he is its first executive chairman to help the charity spread to its next 10 cities. The 24-Hour Race is a global student-run nonprofit that fights modern slavery. To this date, over 1 million have been directly involved in their events and campaigns, raising over 25 million Hong Kong dollars for anti-slavery efforts globally. Keep listening to learn more. Hi, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to Never Too Early. Today, we're so honored to have Christopher Schrader with us, who is a founder of the 24-Hour Race. So before we jump into everything, what is something that you're grateful for today? Yeah, the, literally the weather. It's, it's beautiful outside. Uh, it's cool, 15 degrees. And I've been in, in the last few months, I've been in minus 10, 20. So I'm, I'm grateful for the weather. Wow, that sounds so lovely. Here in Hong Kong, it's, it's pretty gray. So very jealous of that right now. But um, I love that so much for you. Um, so as we get started, would you mind giving a quick introduction about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, so I'm Chris and I'm a third generation Hong Konger. Uh, family originally moved here in the 60s. My mom was born here. I, I guess with regard to the 24 hour race, you know, my the whole journey for me started a few years before it, it started. And that was with, uh, you know, an expedition I did for in memory of a friend of mine. So the, the, the idea was um, the idea was that as a you know, hapless 15, 16 year old student, I didn't really have any skills and certainly no money, but I, you know, I cared, uh, you know, about in, in, in this case about my friends, uh, the disease he passed away from, I wanted to do something about it. I figured, you know, if I pushed my limits physically and mentally, I did something that would have been extraordinary, but relative to me, right. Um, for everyone that's different, uh, people would sort of, you know, maybe raise their eyebrows a bit and, and try and figure out why this guy is doing this thing. And so that was the first instance for me of, you know, connecting this whole idea of endurance and charities. And it seems to be a natural connect, you know, connection. And, you know, we all know people who run marathons, raise money while doing so stuff like that. So fast forward a few years, I think maybe two or three years and several more expeditions, um, all for awful causes I really cared about. I was getting a lot of questions from students who wanted to do something similar. Maybe they had their own cause, you know, that they wanted to support, but they just wanted a little bit of guidance on how to do it. And so I set up a small kind of nonprofit, I guess you could say, where I was just advising uh, groups of, I think about five to 10 groups over the course of a year or two on setting up their own expeditions. 
And it just kept getting bigger. People just kept asking more and more what, you know, what they could do. So I figured it might be nice to give everybody a taste of pushing your, your physical and mental limits for uh, a cause. And that's really where the 24 hour race started. So the idea of the 24 hour race is, you know, it's a relay race. You run it in teams. You don't even have to run it. You know, you can walk it or as, as many, many of us know, you can sleep through most of it. Um, and, you know, if you get tired, you just tag yourself out. So it seemed like a, a good challenge. Like the fittest athletes could push themselves and people who'd never run before could push themselves. So the chat, that was it. And that's a very simple idea. I don't, you know, we call the 24 hour race. I didn't invent the idea of a 24 hour race, right? Like I think a lot of different events around the world do this. And in fact, if you Google 24 hour race, maybe we're at the top now, but it used to be a classic car race in Le Mans called the 24 hour race as well. People, you know, millionaires racing beautiful cars for 24 hours. And so the concept had been around for a while, applying it to students was kind of new because, you know, this was at a time where, uh, and I remember I would, I, I initially started by pitching schools and a common feedback was like, we can't get our students to run, you know, 5Ks for cross country. Why are they gonna, you know, run 24 hours on a weekend? You're insane, this is not gonna work. Um, but I just had this intuition that this was a bit different. And, you know, at a time, I guess, on health and safety and stuff, you know, people wanna do stuff, they wanna, you know, stand out and this was an opportunity so there are very few uh, situations in, in hong kong where so many different schools meet uh, in a relatively casual setting so there's that social aspect all of this was an accident by the way just because i knew at least in my own experiences getting to the finish line was was about what you were doing it for and there were plenty of reasons to quit so i knew that choosing a cause was important but it, it had to be you know not about me anymore i knew nothing about modern slavery but there was one teacher at my school, I went to, to United World College at the time in Hong Kong, and he was extremely passionate about this, you know, this issue of human trafficking. You know, for me, human trafficking was still, you know, Liam Neeson style, you know, pretty girl gets kidnapped on the streets of Paris, not, you know, not what we now understand it to be and at that scale either. So what he introduced me to was the trafficking of children in very poor communities in Northern Nepal into circuses in Southern India. So it wasn't even the global problem of modern slavery. It was just that one particular trafficking channel, which affected maybe a couple hundred kids or something. But by the time they got down to the circuses, they were physically abused, uh, sexually sold, and uh, sometimes were killed, um, in many cases, permanently injured. It just didn't seem difficult to get behind that something like that could be happening. So we elected that as our first cause and our first race was in 2010. And I remember, I think even three months before the race, and they were kind of laughing us out the door. So that's when we went directly to students. You know, we said, screw it. We're just gonna work directly with students. And so the first race really happened because a, a group of directors came together. Uh, a lot of really, really uh, phenomenal young leaders. You know, my, my brother was there, Rafe Morrison, Hugo Doriel, Rachel Walkwitz. It was just a group of students students who also really cared and wanted to do something came together and the event was supposed to be a one-off so we were only supposed to have one 24-hour race that's why it's called the 24-hour race it was just going to happen once but by the time the race day happened we had like over I can't remember the number I think it was 180 runners and we had like twice that many people who wanted to run so we just figured we'd do it one more time and because I'd learned so much in the process of putting the event together, it was like getting a mini degree in entrepreneurship, right? Over the course of six, seven months. I said, you know what? Why don't I just guide the next generation of students to do this? And whoever volunteers just goes for it. And so 
back then it was literally who wants to direct the race few people kind of raised their hand and then they were just a director that's how it worked it became a lot more developed over time but that's how it worked in the beginning and the next year the race doubled in size and doubled in funds raised and that happened every year and suddenly we were going to you know Kuala Lumpur and then Singapore and you know it was just spreading across the globe brought to these new cities by other student directors uh, so it's very cool very cool in the early days very spontaneous very organic and I I have to say, if, if it was successful, it was because there were just some extraordinary students involved in the beginning. And if you hear like all these little bits and bobs, I think you, you need to understand as well, it's pretty lucky, right? Timing was pretty good. The cause we kind of lucked out on in the sense that it would be increasingly relevant and something that more and more students would get behind. Uh, even the challenge, you know, there was no reason to believe that people would want to run for 24 hours. Yet here, here we are, you know, now 11 years later, it's still happening. Um, that's my kind of spark notes of how it all started. Amazing. Wow. That was great. And that was so lovely to hear and just hearing the progression and growth of the 24 hour race. And also just a side note, I love how you mentioned LPC UWC here in Hong Kong because I'm a student there right now. So I'm so like interested in hearing how that inspired you um, to work towards modern slavery. One of the questions that we sort of had was, have you ever faced any challenges starting or like working with the 24 hour race specifically because it is led by children or students? And how do you encourage students who face similar challenges um, to overcome that? Yeah, um, these are really good questions. So it's like our greatest strength as an organization, but it's also our greatest weakness. It's not a weakness because it's student leaders. It's a weakness because every year we have a new generation. So just as the students who are incredibly capable, smart, driven, I mean, all of these directors are brilliant, certainly more, more brilliant than myself and you know, motivated, driven, and, and they're gonna do things with their lives for sure. Um, so it's not a question of their incompetence. It's more that you know, by the time they get really juiced up and warmed up to the race and the concepts and putting it together, you know, they leave and we have to take on a new generation. That's part of our mission, right? So it, it's not a problem for us. You know, we've, it's actually a big part of our mission is the student leadership programs and directors coming in and graduating and then setting up their own charities or companies or whatever. So, you know, it is a challenge, but it's, it's also why we exist and we're, we're very explicit about that. So for us, it's more, how do we do knowledge transfer like pretty smoothly? How does each generation of directors make their race slightly better? Um, that, that's, a, that's a big challenge. Um, anything else? N no, not, not really. I mean, you know, we step in where we have to as an organization. So the scaffolding of the race, you know, we ensure that if the student directors really were to do nothing, um, it would still be a safe race. There would still be the permits, you know, insurance, there would be water and stuff like that. So we kind of guarantee a minimum race. But it would be an extremely boring event if it happened just, just because we put the scaffolding in place. So it really is the student directors, the makeup, you know, the nice clothes, all that. That happened because of the student directors. We've also figured out the areas that we can't afford to mess up on. And we step in or we at least provide very heavy guidance on how to do the other. Yeah, I, I really love how you said that it's your greatest asset while you're the biggest problem. Um, but it really isn't. And I really love how the 24-hour race like aims to cultivate or to like help this group of directors, student directors grow um, throughout the process of planning out this race. Um, you also mentioned just now that right now the 24-hour race actually holds races across 
22 cities. Um, so it is a really global thing. Um, so what has the process been like expanding the 24 hour race and how did you start reaching out to like different countries or um, do you have any suggestions for people who are looking to expand their organizations? Yeah, so um, let me just clarify first by saying, you know, I haven't led the 24 hour race now for a number of years. Uh, as in execution wise, as a CEO or something. So we actually have a CEO, it's Daniel Hesseville, uh, brilliant guy, very talented, actually was originally a runner in our races, then went to university, studied, and now, now leads our organization, which is super cool. And he has been behind that big international push. This was his brainchild and his initiative. Um, so, you know, I can't, I don't want to seem like I'm the genius behind that. By, by, by the time I left the 24-hour race in a kind of operation, capacity I think we were in about five six cities so it's been like a four or five fold increase since I've since I've left but I have been on on the board and I've been sitting as chair so I can see what's what's happening you know I think I think the in terms of international expansion you know when when your charity goes overseas it should just happen pretty organically it shouldn't be something you even really have to plan so in the case of the 24-hour race there's always demand for new races. So there are always a group of students who have run it somewhere. Maybe they move during high school, maybe they move for university and they want to bring the race with them. It's always just been a question of how do we manage that? What do these races look like? Do we want university races, given that we're focused on high schools? Um, is it viable or feasible to do it in this particular country? And then of course, in, in the last few years, you know, COVID has made it really challenging for our organization. We haven't had a physical, you know, an in-person race with a few exceptions in, in basically two and a half, three years, uh, which would normally uh, you know, absolutely kill an organization. But we, you know, Daniel's been really innovative in what we managed to do, how we managed to do it, virtual races, this sort of thing. Not perfect, but really outstanding given the situation that we're in. Um, so, so yeah, first piece of advice is, you know, don't expand unless you're kind of, you're kind of already, like it should just work, you know, just should just feel right. Um, and in our case, we always have this demand. So it's more a question of how can we cater to that demand? What sort of races are we committing to? What's our goal in putting them together? And then I think relying on the locals is really important. 24 hour race, they've been put together by local teams, local ideals, and given, a, I guess, a lot of freedom to express their race however they want to. And that even evolves over generations. So I think, you know, expansion requires a lot of just relying on how it works locally and, and making sure you're working with people who understand the realities of, of where they are and can bridge those with whatever it is is your mission. Yeah, I love that. And like the idea you mentioned at first, like how organic it should be for an expansion, I think that's really important. And throughout like our conversation just now, you repeatedly mentioned how there really is a demand for such races or how students actually want to hold their race or join different races. It shows how important that um, it is the students or the volunteers who want to make an impact instead of planning this out. Um, on that note, I want to ask about managing a team because you mentioned advising different students and also managing the 24-hour race for a period of time. Now you're on the board. I want to ask, do you have any advice for uh, organizations that are constantly expanding or um, when there are like a new generation of directors, how do you uh, manage to teach them the skills needed or um, to incorporate them into the operations of your organization? 
Yeah, so in so far as non-profits go, there's plenty of advice and plenty of lessons learned. I think there are a few things that are kind of easy to overlook. If you want your organization to succeed and you're relying on a lot of volunteers, that's challenging because with, with a volunteer, you have a weird relationship. You know, they are giving your, you their time for free. So they kind of feel like you owe them something and you have a mission and work to do. And you kind of just want them to do it regardless of the status of their volunteership. And what I think I've realized over time is it's best to treat volunteers like employees of a sort. And what I mean by this is, sure, they're giving their time, but they still have a standard to meet and a job to do. And if they're fickle about that, it doesn't reflect well on anyone. Now, this is really important because if you have one, if you have a team of say six or seven directors and you have one director who really isn't pulling their weight. Often it comes down to effort. If, if people are making effort, but they're messing up, that's part of our mission, that's fine. But if they're not really putting the effort in or the work's being done in a lazy way, that doesn't just affect their role, it affects everybody else. Everyone else can see that and everyone else can see that that behavior is tolerated. And so the overall level and quality of work of your organization just goes down. So one of the key pieces of advice I have for people working with a lot of volunteers is you have to nip that in the bud soon. So if you see someone isn't pulling their weight, very easy to pull them aside and just say, hey, look, I don't think this is uh, working to the level I expect, what's going on? Maybe they'll, they'll give you an answer that's fine and, and you'll move forward, maybe not, but it will drag the whole team out unless it's, unless it's addressed. That's one thing I think of. Um, another thing is if, if your team is gonna work, you, you have to be willing to give credit as a leader. And this is quite hard in the, in, in the vain world of being a high school student, you know, having been there myself, but you know, everybody wants the credit, everyone wants to be leader and, or at least recognize as leader. Um, so I guess you, you know, you should start by setting an example that the mission is, is far more important than your, for example, your ego, or your position, um, and, and see how you can try and give credit as much as possible to your team. One expression I used to repeat to myself to kind of draw this home was, you know, things go really terribly, it's my fault. If, if they go okay, it's, it's our fault. And if they go really, really, really well, it's your fault. So that, that was like how I would think about things in general is, okay, if there's, if, there's a, if there's a big screw up, it's I can ultimately trace it back to myself in some way, right? Even just by working with this person, like that's the most simple way to look at it. But probably there was a system in place that could have changed or a conversation I could have had or whatever. Um, if it goes really well, I, I think I've done something right, but it's in, in enabling other people to do their, their, their jobs uh, respectively well. That's, that's one way to think of it. Uh, you can't go wrong. If people really feel like they own the work they're contributing and, you know, they're leaders of a kind and um, they're recognized for that, uh, you'll go far. And I think we do that pretty well, I would say, um, you know, and, and I don't think I'm being facile about it. I mean, our directors do put together our races. They do work when the directors are good. And if we don't have good directors, we don't have good races. So it is, it isn't just an expression for us. It's also just a reality. Another mental exercise that I, I like to ask people is, for example, if they're starting a, an organization, a charity of some kind, could they do this for 20, 30 years uh, without any recognition at all? Like no one would even know that it was done by them. Let's say it, it really works out. Let's say the 24 hour race existed today and nobody knew that I was a founder or I had anything to do with it. Uh, which is kind of true, by the way. I mean, I'm I'm a little older now. I, I you know it's been you know over ten years since I've been in high school, so uh, people really don't know who I am um, anymore. 
would, would I still be okay with this? And, and I, I feel okay without it. You know, it's nice that I get the recognition, but I also think the work that the charity's done is enough. But it's, it's a hard exercise to really do, to say, hey, if I, had, I couldn't put this on my uni essay, you know, this is just gonna, gonna be for the sake of this thing. Um, would, it, would it be worth it? Another thought I have as well about putting together nonprofit so, social impact stuff, I'll give you two thoughts. Okay, so one is a similar mental exercise, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you know, a good chunk of your working life, you, you, you try and solve this problem for this cause and you, you completely fail. So you've just spent 20, 30 years of your life and you've got nowhere. Is it still worth it? Is, is it, you know, would it has still been a battle worth fighting? If you can say yes to that, that's very powerful. You know, that's something deeply personal to you. You don't need to succeed. It's just a battle you need to fight. I think that's a really cool way to think about putting your time and energy into things. Um, the final thing I'll say about the success of the 24 hour race, which I think is a message you know, it's quite personal, it's, it's quite important to me, and I think it's a little bit lost now, is um, there's no such thing as should. So a lot of activism today has turned into you should, etc. And a lot of it's negative uh, enforcement. So, you know, you're contributing to the problem, you are the problem, maybe. Uh, this doesn't grow global movements. I mean, I guess it does. There have been some global movements built based on this, but my attitude is a bit different. Um, maybe it's not the right one. Um, but I, it's worked, I think it's worked. And that is that um, social causes a bit like, you know, products, you, you can buy them or you, you, you know, you, you don't have to buy them, you have choices. And everybody has a limited amount of time. So, you know, just because someone's wearing, you know, an H&M shirt that's perhaps made by, by in traffic children, for example, uh, doesn't mean they're a bad person, right? Just people just have limited amount of time and there are literally millions of causes out there. Now, the reason I think the 24-hour race has gotten big is because it's, of all the causes, modern slavery is a pretty big one, right? It affects a lot of different parts of life. So it kind of warrants a little bit more support. But view yourself as a positive competitor in the market. So, you know, with us, we just sort of say, hey, we're putting on this big sleepover marathon thing, you know, it's going to be great fun. Do you know anything about slavery? It doesn't matter. Just come turn up, have a great time with your friends. And then we try and talk about the cause by attending, by participating. We try and advocate for people to fundraise, but mainly we're trying to win them over to the, the greatness of our events rather than say, hey, you should care about this because of X, Y, and Z. And if you don't, you're a bad person. Uh, we try and say, you don't have to know anything about this. Heck, you could run this race and you, you, know, you may not have have, have learned anything about slavery and we'd still welcome you back next year um, to come and run it again. And so I think that's a, a really important point is if you want to win in, in the sense that your organization kind of grows and, and raises funds, if that's what it does or advocates for a cause, try and think about positive competition and how to win over customers, uh, you know, customers, I guess, stakeholders, supporters, uh, rather than guilt them or shame them. I think that, and that's really, if you can do that, that's, you know, you're already going to stand out because I feel like a lot of messaging today is here's why you're a terrible person. Um, you know, and I just don't think that that works. Uh, I don't think that works. That, that was incredible. I, I really love how towards the end you talked about, you know, not scaring or not making people feel so negative about something that's such a large issue and instead really enticing them and getting them involved through doing something that sounds enjoyable and is enjoyable like 
you know, the sleepover and running. And so sort of moving on from that, in that past answer, you talked a little bit more about the impact that 24-hour race has had. So I was wondering, since the start of the 24-hour race, how do you think um, that this initiative has been able to change and impact uh, the issue of modern slavery? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's two types of impact that we measure, which is we raise funds, we donate those funds to grassroots organizations, organizations that actually fight trafficking on the ground. We don't, we don't have full-time volunteers working in you know, parts of the world where trafficking is a real, real issue, uh, but we try and donate effectively. So for example, remember that first charity we supported, which was to, to fight the trafficking of children um, from Nepal into, into India into circuses. Tangibly, within two years of us funding that organization, they ended that route of trafficking with a law. In fact, I believe it was India's first law which specifically banned a human trafficking channel. So the cause was you know, addressed. We didn't have to rescue kids from circuses anymore because they couldn't be trafficked into circuses. Since then, it's very difficult to measure these things because often we're one donor, albeit a large donor, um, among many other donors of the projects that we've supported. And we went from when I was CEO in 2014, where we would have one country, one cause. So each, each race would choose its own cause to, to support to growing pretty, pretty large and then eventually centralizing around one partner who had many, many other partners they work with around the world, which is our model now. So tracing you know, your dollar into this organization and then how does that actually get spent and does it go towards the specific rescue or rehabilitation of someone um, is challenging, uh, but we've calculated it to be like the funds raised by students we think have, have, have directly rescued and rehabilitated some, something like two to 3,000 people uh, tangibly. Now, you know, you save, you save a life, you save the universe is kind of the old saying, right? So anyone you can help is a big deal, but we do have to think about return on investment, right? And we're an organization that's, that's raising millions every year. So a big part about how we think about our impact is the number of students running our races, volunteering in them, being exposed in some way to them, and then going forward in their lives with that you know, subtitle in, in their lives. If human trafficking is a problem, here's how it exists. So when people will go to university, graduate, have a job, and it comes to simple consumer decisions or working within a company or starting one and thinking about how to avoid uh, supporting trafficking in any way or modern slavery in any way, We'd like to think we've had a small role in that. Um, advocacy is a big issue. You know, when, whenever, when young people care about something, we see that the, the world can, can change overnight as a result of that. Um, so you know, it's a powerful, it's a force to be reckoned with. And we're thinking about generational change. If we have one, you know, our, our vision, right? 24 hours, millions of youth, the end of slavery, right? If, if we can get one day, millions of people to run at the same, we, we used to host our races, by the way, at the same time, which was really cool. We, don't, we can't do that anymore. Europe has, it's too cold in Europe, that sort of thing. But the idea was, you know, if we can get millions of people at the same time, all thinking about slavery and advocating for solutions to their, to their local manifestations of the problem, maybe, maybe we, can, we can make a dent in this industry. Considering that 
you know, estimates vary on, on what the value of the industry is and how many people are in state, but I've had like 45 million or more people in an industry worth over 100 billion US dollars. So uh, a year. So it's a huge problem. It's, it's you know, we're not going to outfund it. Um, you know, when even you know, two, three thousand sounds like a lot, but hey, it's 45 million. And if you're super cynical, you could also say by um, removing one person from slavery, you're actually creating another slave so long as the demand doesn't disappear. So you rescue one person, well, someone who wasn't in slavery maybe is now enslaved to fill that gap. Like it's not quite, it's not a perfect analogy, but that's a very cynical reading of, of, of what actually rescue means. So you have to address the actual demand. You have to think about sh changing people's views. You know, a big problem at the moment, for example, is people buy really cheap crap and lots of it. Uh, and if we can address that problem, for example, we'd address a lot of slavery. Like everybody these days is shopping all the time and the stuff they're that they're buying is getting made in places where regulation isn't so good um, and people are exploited. So if we all just bought a little less crap um, and we cared a little bit more about where it was made, by whom, um, that would already have a big effect on the whole problem of slavery. If you wanted to, so if you wanted to solve like a, a large aspect of that, it would just come down to consumer choice. Do I want to spend a few dollars more for a product that's maybe made at a slightly higher quality and certainly is free of slavery? Um, that would have a much larger impact than anything we could do. But that's a cultural shift. And so we don't, you know, we can influence that. And I'd like to think we have, you know, it's certainly either very coincidental that the 24 hour, as the 24 hours grew throughout Asia, that the, the cause became much more mainstream. Because I guarantee you in 2010, nobody was talking about human trafficking. Um, I, I didn't know what it was, for goodness sake, right? Like, nobody was talking about it. So that's maybe co coincidental. Again, I'm, I'm willing to believe that we just got the timing right. But I also like to think we definitely contributed to that wave. A lot of people running 24 hours kind of crazy. Why are they doing it? Oh, it's for this cause. And then, then in turn, like a lot of the students that run the race put together events on uh, school campuses, totally not related to us, but advocating for issues around modern slavery and stuff like that. Yeah, that's really amazing. I love how you mentioned that impact is sometimes not measurable and sometimes it might actually make you feel like lost in the process of like trying to advocate for a particular social problem. But at the end of the day, even um, challenging the volunteers to run for like 24 hours or having the student directors try organizing an entire 24 hour race is already a type of impact. And um, as student leaders, that is also something that we should take account of. So wrapping up, we have a few questions that we ask every guest. So firstly, on the topic of making an impact in our community or making a change in this world, what is a change maker to you? One way I like to think about this is to think about the greatest impact you can have as a person. And I think, and I think we often get this really wrong. So we think that the biggest impact we can have is at the sort of Gates Foundation, Elon Musk's of the world level, where you've created something that is global, maybe generates billions of dollars, maybe doesn't, affects millions of people. I actually don't think that's the biggest impact you can make at all. In fact, the, the, the biggest impact you can make starts with the people immediately around you, in particular, your family, your community, your friends. And very often, uh, their lives are not easy. Uh, they're not always going well. And there are little things that you can do that 
will drastically change the course of their day, their month, their year, their lives. Like I could buy a Tesla and maybe I'm doing a little bit to change the planet, but one conversation with one family member or friend could change my life for the better in ways I can't even imagine. Um, so all, so being a change maker, I think starts by opening your eyes and figuring out how to be a great community member and a great family member, you know, if that's, if that's possible for you, uh, and being a great friend, you know, and then, and then I think you could start to think about being part of a larger community. Uh, and lastly, and, and least importantly is being the founder of the 24 hour race. Um, the, 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 the most important thing really starts with how you live your day-to-day -day life and the decisions you make with it. Now, this doesn't mean you're a perfect person at all, uh, you know, but I think there are things that all of us can do every day that drastically improve the well-being of ourselves and our communities. Uh, and that's where being a change maker starts. If you, if you skip that part, what the hell are you doing? There are plenty of people we, we now know who kind of advocate for, for big causes and, and big change, but maybe in their personal lives are not so perfect or could have done things a, a little better. I think that's where we, where we should maybe start. And I, by the way, I'm not saying that someone who is flawed can't do great things at all. No, no, that's far, far from what I'm saying. In fact, one of my little expressions is, is hypocrites know best. Like if you're someone who's hypocritic, you're advocating to do things differently uh, it's probably because you're doing something and you understand to some extent, you know, more so than people who don't do it, that it's not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for the community, that sort of thing. It's a very generous reading of hypocrites, but, but I, I do think it's, it's, it's true. It's true to some extent. So yeah, I would start by thinking about your life today, the things you're interested in, the friends you have, your family members, and how you can impact their lives, because that will always be the biggest impact you as a human being can ever make. Yeah, that is very true. And I also think it's it's always important to sort of look inwards when you're looking to make change because a lot of people sort of want to overcome a massive issue or you know make massive like make huge change to show that um, they're able to make a difference in this world. But um, I think you know like the best differences that you can make all come from within. And even if the person that you are making change for is yourself or are the people who are directly around you, that is equally if not more powerful um yeah. another question we sort of have for that um that we ask a lot of our guests as we wrap up um is just for some context we are part of the entrepreneurs network so essentially that's a network for and by female entrepreneurs um so one question we love to ask is who is one female entrepreneur change maker role model that you look up to oh goodness good question Good question. Uh, I should have I should have an answer ready. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with someone I know who uh, was is actually on on the board. So Gloria, you you should definitely chat with her. Uh, I think you know going back to what I said earlier about trying to make the biggest impact you can make is around the people you know and and, and the community that you're a part of. I think she really exemplifies that. She is, by the way, just a very successful person in general. Okay, so so she, you know, she she she's she's done several amazing things, and she's now co-founded a company which, which is uh, in the health health space. And and before that, she's she's been a, a big activist for sustainability and fashion. Um, so I'll go I'll go with someone I know and, and my respect. Uh, she's on the board. 
Gloria, you, I hope you get a chance to, to, to chat with her. That is amazing. And one of our questions actually later would be anyone you would recommend us talking to. So we would definitely um, stalk her LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, so as we wrap up, just now you've already given a lot of amazing advice. Me and Bailey were like, keep taking notes. Um, but is there one final piece of advice, short and sweet, you would give to ambitious, excited youth out there who are looking to make a difference in their community? Yeah, don't give up. You know, companies fail because, not because they run out of money or because they don't have customers or it's because the founders give up. At some point, they just don't care enough to carry on. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, but the easiest way to succeed is to just never accept no as an answer and, and to constantly figure yourself out. I think this is my life philosophy. I don't think I'm a, a very smart guy. I'm certainly not very rich, um, you know, but I don't give up ever. Um, I mean, okay, within reason, there are, there are times I'll give up. Uh, but I try my best to really, really, really hold out for as long as possible. And I think you'll, you'll be kind of surprised with how much you can learn and achieve at the very least by just pushing through with something, uh, even when it doesn't seem like it will work. I mean, again, remember the 24 hour race, we had zero, zero signups months before the event. And then it just happened. It just worked out. And the same, same is true for every other race, every, every, everything else that we've done, uh, never worked the first time. It took some, it took a few errors and a few lessons, sometimes really hard lessons uh, to figure things out. So don't give up. I love that so much. And I think not giving up is, is a testament to the growth that the 24 hour race, you know, has experienced over the few years. And, you know, if you had given up that first time you tried and nobody signed up, where would it be now? Like, so it's incredible to think that just persistence can get you so far. Um, and I'm sure, you know, you on the board of the 24 hour race and just the 24 hour race as a whole will continue to do so much um, in terms of expansion and in terms of just making an impact on, on the issue of modern slavery. So for those people who are listening that might want to follow your journey or the 24 hour race, where can they do that? So I'm, I'm not on social media at all, um, but, you know, check out our Instagram page, 24 hour race, uh, or our website, 24 hour race.org. Um, I think we might even have a TikTok now. <laughs> uh, I don't know. And it's certainly a Snapchat. So th that, that would be the, the way to figure it out. Definitely sign up for our newsletter. Uh, if you want to get involved, uh, please get in touch. You know, there are lots of ways to do that, whether that's on Instagram or on the website and you know, I hope to see you at our next in-person race whenever that happens. Amazing. Thank you so much. Again, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. It was amazing. Um, and hope to see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Huge thank you for tuning in to this podcast. We hope we taught you something today. If you would like to hear the insights of other young changemakers, tune into this podcast every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Hong Kong time which is GMT plus eight. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. To stay updated and involved, follow at nevertooearly.pod on Instagram. We have all the links in the description of this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you next week.